quantum mechanics. Yes, we are the Quantum Mechanics, the paranormal podcast for the believers, the doubters and everyone in between. And welcome to our third Halloween show, I think. Yes, I think third. Yeah. 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 Wow, that went quickly. I was uh, I was a mere boy when we first started doing these. Man and boy. Yes, yes. The least successful <laughs> chain of restaurants. <laughs> Don't yeah. even know why that's funny. I, yeah. I, I'm loving it because we kind of, I mean, I know this goes out on Halloween on Monday, but we're recording it at the weekend. So it, it, it's Halloween weekend as far as I'm concerned. We've been carving pumpkins. We've been doing the lot. Yeah, yeah. We went to Halloween pop quiz and everyone dressed up. I didn't. Oh, I was going to say, what did you dress up as? <laughs> uh, I didn't dress up. But I did, when I uh, was on my way over here today to your house, there's loads of people selling pumpkins and everything's being carved, as you said. And uh, there's loads of stuff in the shops that every year they go, how can we make Easter and Christmas stuff also work for Halloween? Yeah. So those, those cr- chocolate Santas which you normally get at Christmas, which then became the same mould but used for chocolate bunnies, uh, are now reprising their role as chocolate monsters. So, See, I, I love... Uh, I was thinking... Because normally I do watch a horror film on Halloween, but I'm planning tonight to watch um, A Nightmare Before Christmas. So I'm kind of doing the same thing. Cause it's one of those films. You can, you can get away with watching it at Halloween or at Christmas, right? I love A Nightmare Before Christmas. Oh, it's one of my favourite films. It's another one of those, it's a bit like Gremlins, where you think it's Tim Burton. I know it's kind of Tim Burton's A Nightmare Before Christmas, and he's heavily involved, but you always think he directed it, but he didn't. Oh, did he not? No, no. Um, you know, but it. Well, I think it was his pet project, so, you know, it's not It's not like a big, uh, a big problem that he didn't, but it's. Um, I love it. I absolutely love it as a film. Me too, me too. It's a good one. I'm going to be watching a spooky film tonight, although it's not about ghosts. It's the new Alien uh, film, not Aliens as in the franchise Alien. The director who made The Phenomenon has got a new film out about right. a Brazilian UFO crash. Oh, and what, what, like a, it's not fictional? It's a, is it a doco? Or? It's a doco, yeah. Wow, okay. And it's one... A few awards for some film festivals, and um, oh, that sounds amazing. Yeah, I'm going to do that. Um, but it's someone else's house because my girlfriend <laughs> does not enjoy UFOs. <laughs> She's not into UFOs not, in yeah, any okay. way, shape, or form. Well, you can always come round here if you want to watch it. I'm up for that. Okay, cool. Um, so you're right. So normally on Halloween, we try to do things a little bit differently, and this episode is no different. Um, what we've decided to do. Uh, rather than because normally one of us works on an episode and presents it to the other but we've we've been kind of little gathering ghost stories we decided we wanted to ghost stories for halloween didn't we so i've yeah. been gathering some and you've been gathering some yes um i've been looking out for really bad ones because i think the really bad ones are great i've got a collection of some really bad ones excellent and i've gone for um it, i've got something from a book a number of stories from a book that I came across. I was looking for a book of sceptic ghost stories, which I thought Mm. wouldn't exist, until I came across a book called Ghost Stories, 
collected with a particular view to counteract the vulgar belief in ghosts and apparitions. (laughs) (laughs) Authors are Carey and Hart, and it was published in 1846. So, yeah, my thought was, my two things that I thought were interesting, for me, Victorian ghost stories are the best. And, and, uh, but I really wanted to see if there was anything from a a sceptic view. So I'm going to be doing a couple of stories from that book. uh, And they're quite interesting. They set them up as a true ghost story and people believed they were ghost stories. They're all true stories. But then they go on to explain what the actual logical explanation for the ghostly sighting was so it's quite an intriguing book well i've got something that will dovetail into that from um, richard wiseman's book paranormality um where he tries to explain to us why ghosts don't exist and demonstrates a experiment which i don't think proves ghosts don't exist but, right. <laughs> but uh let's have a think about it excellent all right well look shall i kick off uh i'll kick off with one of these stories from this this great book okay uh This one is titled The Danger of Tampering with the Fear of Ghosts. The Danger of Tampering with the Fear of Ghosts. Oh, I see where they're coming from. Yeah, right, right. So, yeah, apologies. This Obviously, when this was written, I'm going to probably be a bit flowery in my language because I am going to read the stories verbatim, as it were. Um, So let's start. Towards the end of the first century of the last century... The beliefs in ghosts and fear of the supernatural appearances began here and there to be considered as silly and dangerous. About this period, some young men who were pursuing their studies in Vienna and lived on friendly terms together manifested a strong desire to shake off all the prejudice and superstitious notions in which they had been brought up. They soon perceived, however, that it was only by slow decrees that this object could be accomplished. Nevertheless, one of them, named Joseph Bernhard, who was apt to talking rather big, insisted that at the age of 22 he had long since completely conquered the grossest of his former prejudice, for instance, the dread of apparitions. The dread of apparitions. Oh, yeah. Yes, said one of his companions. I know as well as you that devils and spectres have not the power to hurt us. I am firmly convinced, as you can be, that God is much too gracious and tender a father to abandon us to the power of evil spirits. But still I cannot wholly free myself from the influence of the silly gossip of my nurse relative to this subject. Different times. (laughs) (laughs) And though I know there is no such thing as a hobgoblin of whom she threatened to give me in order to keep me quiet and laugh at all such nonsense, still an obscure feeling of some inexplicable connection of night and darkness with the occupation of invisible spirits pervades my mind. I cannot pass late at night by the channel house of our churchyard with coolness and composure. An involuntary horror comes over me, and I always quicken my pace, though I am thoroughly satisfied that the dead will lie quietly enough in their graves and that those to whom the bones in the channel house once belonged have not the power to do the least injury. Well, I guess... Talking big, talking big, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a very flurry way of saying I get a bit freaked out walking through a graveyard. Yeah, Yeah. but I get over it. Bernhardt laughed heartily at this frank confession and was not sparing of sarcastic remarks on his friend. 
For my part, added he, boastfully, I would engage to go tonight into the vault close to the channel house and give the corpse deposited there for a few days a slap in the face. God, why do they always do this in Victorian times? You don't need to do it, go yeah. and give it a slap in the face. Yeah. He says without the slightest alarm. His friends, on account of his swaggering, took him at his word. As to the slap in the face, they said they, we will cheerfully excuse you and the poor corpse from that, but we shall expect you to prove tonight, between twelve and one, that you are capable of doing what you assert, or we shall all consider you as an arrogant braggart. <laughs> and a big girl's blouse. Yeah, who has, who has his heart in his mouth. Bernhardt was almost offended because his companions seemed to doubt his assurance and declared that he was quite ready to submit to the required test. One of the students who was acquainted with the family to whom the vault in question belonged found means to procure the keys. In the evening, the party assembled at Bernhardt's apartment and awaited with impatience the arrival of midnight. Twelve o'clock at length struck. They gave the resolute Bernhardt the key to the vault and a fork. Which does come into this. Oh, I was going to say. <laughs> Here you go. <laughs> the fork, which was to prove that he'd really been there. He was to stick it into the coffin containing the corpse. Wait, to... how does that prove he was there, though? Yeah, I didn't, quite, I, I didn't quite get that bit. But the whole concept is, rather than have him slap this corpse in the face, yeah. he has to go in there spend some time in there an hour by the sounds of it stick the corpse uh, stick the fork in the uh, in the coffin and then come out again why they couldn't have just said he's been in there for an hour i, I don't know, know but <laughs> <laughs> different time spent different price it's just so bizarre <laughs> yeah. here is a cloth you must wave six times to prove you were there i have to say this is this is supposed to be a true story all of these are true stories I believe. oh okay but yes why i don't know the students, for the sake of ease, were in their morning gowns. Bernhard, without quitting his, set out on the expedition. His friends th thought they could perceive him change colour when they put the key and fork into his hands, but yet he left them in apparently the highest spirits. Oh, I don't think they're going. Ah, oh, I see. They didn't want part of it, so the fork is the proof. Although he could have just run in there and stuck it in and then run out again and gone to the pub, but there you go. They concluded that he was still in the same predicament with themselves. They were all firmly convinced that no harm was to be apprehended in the vault from a real ghost. But yet they could not help shudder when they fancied themselves in his place, fork in hand beside the coffin. Bernhard stayed much longer than they expected. According to their calculations, the whole business might have been performed in less than a quarter of an hour, and yet the clock struck one, and he had not returned. They began to be uneasy at his long absence and to apprehend that some accident had befallen him. They accordingly agreed to go in a body with a lantern to the vault in quest of their friend. By the way, they still entertained hopes of meeting him, but they were disappointed. The reader may conceive their alarm when they at length found him extended upon the ground before the open door of the vault and to all appearances, lifeless. They insistently lifted him up, spoke to him, but received no answer. They held the lantern to his face, 
It was pale as death. His mouth was wide open, as though in the act of screaming, and his eyes seemed startled from their sockets. As soon as his young companions had recovered from their first fright, they lost no time in taking the necessary measures for his revival. In the first place, they loosened all those parts of his dress which, by their pressure, tended still more to impede the already obstructed circulation of blood. The strongest of them then took him on his back, carried him home, while some ran for a doctor, or otherwise occupied in arrangements for the recovery of their unfortunate friend. Not a moment was lost in useless lamentations or frivolous conjectures, which is good to know. I was worried about those frivolous conjectures. (laughs) For they well knew that the delay of a quarter of an hour might in such cases prove fatal. The moment they had reached his chamber, they undressed him and put him to bed, lying him on his right side that the determination of blood to the region of the heart might not be increased. They frequently sprinkled his face with cold water and held to his nose a smelling bottle containing volatile salts. I love that phrase. Mm -hmm. For want of which the best vinegar may be employed. Didn't know that. After they preserved some time in these attentions, some faint signs of returning animation were perceived. The doctor and his assistant redoubled their exertions and at length had the inexpressible satisfaction to recall to life by their efforts the, impar- the apparently inanimate Bernhard. The happiness which they felt at his revival was disdained, however, to to experience a severe drawback. They at first supposed he was unable to speak from weakness, but unfortunately he never afterwards recovered entirely the power of speech. The violence of the fright had paralysed his tongue, and for a long time he could not articulate a word so as to be understood. When asked what had happened to him on that unfortunate night in the vault, he shuddered, and then made a sign and desired pen and ink to be brought to him in bed on which he answered the inquiry of his friends in the following words. I have been severely punished for my boasting and presumption. I reached the coffin without perceiving anything that at all resembled a ghost. But when I had with trembling hands stuck the fork into the coffin and was retiring from the utmost precipitation, something detained me by seizing my morning gown. I struggled to extricate myself, but fell senseless with fright to the ground and know not what happened afterwards. Now, at this point, Ben, I'm going to pause because these are stories where there is a logical explanation and I wondered if you had any theories. So where... He basically, he describes that he, he sounded like he fainted, basically. Well, he, he I, in less flowery words, he headed off for the vault with the fork. He got in, found the coffin, stabbed the fork in the coffin, was leaving. Something grabbed his nightgown and tugged at him. He was so shocked that he collapsed to the ground. And it sounds like from the description, he either had so so much trauma he couldn't speak or he had some kind of mini stroke by the sounds of it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I was thinking that he was he basically fainted as, as he walked out. But surely 
the logical explanation is that when he stabbed the fork in, it caught some of his clothing and he just perceived that and then he freaked out. Freaked out from that? Yeah. Okay, well, let's read on. On reading these lines, Bernhard's friends were not a little astonished. They were not disposed to question the truth of this statement, but their reason had many objections to urge against it. How could a ghost hold a person fast by the morning gown? How could an immaterial being have hands to grasp any material object? They puzzled their brains for a considerable time in vain to reconcile their friend's account of his adventure with the voice of sound reason. At length they resolved to examine the vault itself in hopes of discovering some trace of the supposed spirit. Without communicating their intentions to Bernhardt, his inquisitive comrades repaired the following night at the hour of twelve to the vault. They had a good sense to equip themselves against any emergency because experience has taught them that such precautions impart courage for the pursuit of an inquiry of this nature. They took care to be provided, among with other things, several lanterns, for the same spectre which had terrified Bernhard out of his wits in the dark might perhaps prove in good light to be mere trifle. They thus proceeded with due precaution to the vault, searched every corner of it, looked among all the coffins, but found nothing. At length one of them perceived the fork which their unfortunate friend had brought with him the preceding night. It was thrust deep into one of the coffins, and from it hung a small piece of cotton. Oh. oh, Ben, you're good, you're good. Thank God, cried he, the ghost is discovered. See, here is the fork and a bit of cotton out of Bernhardt's morning gown. The poor fellow, in his hurry, pinned his gown with the fork to the coffin and then imagined that it was a spirit which held him fast. Perfectly satisfied with this discovery, they quitted the dreary abode of death and hastened next morning to their unfortunate friend to communicate to him the solution of the mystery. He immediately took up his morning gown, and sure enough, not only was there the expected hole, but the bit of cotton was found to fit exactly. (laughs) Bernhardt was greatly rejoiced at the discovery of the delusion, but never recovered perfectly the use of the origins of his speech. Oh, come on. Yeah. So, okay. Supposedly, Bernhard's friends had possessed less enterprise and resolution than were required for the cool investigation of the nature of an imaginary ghost. That is to say, of the nature of the natural cause of fright that overpowered him. What would then have been thought of his story? The circumstances would have certainly been deemed inexplainable and attributed to the operation of some evil spirit, and one generation would have repeated the tale to another with dismay and horror, or supposing Bernhard had not struck the fork deep enough into the coffin, so that on retiring he had pulled it out again with his morning gown, without tearing the latter. What clue would there have been to the discovery of the real fact? In this case, his associates would probably have found the fork laying on the pavement of the vault, but would have been unable to conceive how it came there, and their comrades declared that he had stuck it into the coffin, there would have been a bit of cotton to explain the mystery. Had they even possessed sufficient good sense to consider that it's not always possible to detect the natural cause of effect attributed to the supernatural agency, still this would not have been sufficient to satisfy Bernhardt, 
who as long as he lived would have firmly believed that an evil spirit had really held him fast by the coffin and depraved him of speech as a punishment for his presumption. I mean, if he watched an episode of uh, Most Haunted, he, he, he his legs would have fallen off. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, I mean, that. so this is a true story, you say? It's a true story, yeah. Mm. Well... It's from eighteen the eighteen hundreds, so you know there may be some exaggeration, but I mean there are some bits that I don't understand. I don't know why his friends didn't go down with him, why he had to stick the foot. You know, the, you know what I mean. It's like surely did you will go all oh, this is a bit of a wheeze. We'll wait outside the vault. You go in there for you know fifteen minutes or an hour or however long it is. Maybe they thought the spirits wouldn't arrive if there was too many of them. But if we take it at face value, I did think that point at the end is quite interesting that, I mean, you got there with a logical, natural explanation. But as they say at the end of that, if you, um, if he'd pulled the fork out or it had not actually ripped or um, uh, ripped out a piece of his, his morning coat or whatever they call it, then, yeah, those, the legend of it would probably have gone on, right? Yeah, it would. But also, <laughs> I still, the note, yeah, just use a fork because that proves where you've been. Yeah, yeah. That's utterly ridiculous. Different times. It's utterly ridiculous. Yeah. It doesn't make any sense whatsoever. I, I am quite fascinated by that idea of you being able to spook yourself out to that level, though. I do think that's interesting. That you're, you're, you're so hyper alert. I would have thought in that scenario, plus all the cultural references of ghosts and spirits and the graveyard and in a vault and all that kind of stuff. I mean, by the sounds of it, from that description, it scared him so much he either had a mini heart attack or a stroke. Yeah, I mean, there is this notion of can you literally be scared to death? Yeah. And in fact, so there was a... I wouldn't say it was a study. There was a notion at some point that it was possible that your nightmares could be so frightening they would kill you. But I think that is something that was thought before we really understood what aneurysms were and things like that. Right, right. Um, but that's kind of one of the ideas. So the, um, and I can't remember who it was now, but the guy who penned the Freddy Krueger stories, right. he the, he got one of his ideas from that. Um, right. In Victorian times, you know, people who were found dead in the morning when they had no apparent other health problems were deemed that they could have, in some cases, scared themselves to death. But it right. seems unlikely. Right. Talking of scaring yourselves to death, <laughs> why don't I punctuate that story... With the least scary ghost story I found. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I've put a, a collection together of the least scary ghost stories, but they are pitched as ghost stories, and right. I like this one. Okay. It comes from a woman she doesn't name herself, and damn right, too, she should be ashamed of herself. <laughs> and uh, basically, this happens in the mid-'90s, and she's a teenager, and she's making herself a sandwich before she goes off to a Saturday job. This is in America. And she's made this really quite impressive sandwich. She describes how she's taken some leftover turkey. She's put some ham in there. She's got some Swiss cheese. She's got some lettuce. We get the idea. This is a big... Well, no, I need more detail. Because I think that that 
ham and turkey combo. That's quite extravagant, isn't it? It's yeah, but it's a good combo though, isn't good it? Combo. Ham and turkey. Did she talk about mayonnaise or mustard or any anything like that? She doesn't mention those. I think. Oh, my mouth's watering now. Oh. I, I'd put mayo on the bottom and ham uh, and uh, mustard on the top. I you know, think. I'd, I'd I'd be even more controversial. I'd go for a bit of pickle. Well. They're, yes, all of these things are as terrifying as the other. Oh, sorry, back to the <laughs> back to the scary bit. We've got sidetracked. Uh, so she leaves this sandwich in the kitchen while she goes and gets her bag. Comes back, sandwich isn't there. So she asks. I'm not surprised though. I know. <laughs> so the only other person in the house is her mother, who swears blind she never she never took the sandwich, and she hasn't got any pets. So. She just stomps off to work, cross that her masterpiece sandwich has been yeah, eaten. I'm with her. 32 years later, she is staying at her mum's house. Her mum still lives in the same place. Well, her par- both her parents do. Right. Um, and she's, she comes down to that kitchen in the middle of the night because she's got to get some milk for her baby. And there, on the kitchen surface, is the very same sandwich that she had made 32 years ago she sees it in the moonlight she turns the light of the kitchen on and it disappears into thin air she says it just it it almost uh, waves out of existence but she said there can be no doubt about it that was my sandwich <laughs> sleep well people <laughs> <laughs> oh ben just as you were saying that I got goosebumps all over my all over my tongue. <laughs> <laughs> I got drool all over my legs. It, it reminds me. Do you remember? I may might have been on a previous Halloween episode. We uh, where we talked to Ruth Roper Wild of the disappearing, the disappearing sausage. sausage. Yes, yeah. It reminds me of that. Although this involves a lot more work because I'm with her. If you kind of constructed a sandwich like that, well. Maybe it was her mum just playing a trick on her. Although, how would she make it disappear, I guess? How would she make it disappear? I mean, it's possible. Uh, I still figure she was still sore about this sandwich. Yeah, she's obviously not let that go. She's not let it go. And she just had that vision when she came downstairs of, I remember that flipping lovely sandwich. But in effect, what happened is, like, I reckon a neighbourhood cat got in or something like that. Yeah. Um, So the plate, I don't know if it goes into this much detail. The plate was still there, or did the plate disappear as well? The whole thing was gone. Which I now have questions, which I know you won't be able to answer because they won't be that detailed. So you're going to say, did did the plate did disappear out of? Well, did I it don't know. Reappear on a plate, or was it just on the counter? No. Well, I, she just says it's there. It's there, right? She she does say as she remembers seeing it last. So I imagine it would be on a on a plate. The only other thing that I was thinking, because you kind of go. Like a poltergeist could play a trick on you, but it's it's a pretty lame trick for a poltergeist to play. I started thinking about those nature spirits that we were talking about last week. There there might be a sandwich spirit. Who oh, sat- there will be. Yeah. There's definitely a sandwich spirit. Ma- maybe the sandwich spirit was a bit upset about the mixture of meats. Well, it needs Even to get over a good itself. Because the saltiness of the ham brings out the uh, the turkey. Yeah. But this... this, um, this a story I found as part of a discussion thread and somebody later on pitches in as if that was a terrifying story <laughs> and they offer this two lines. <laughs> One night when I was three or so, a man came into my room and said, Argy, Argy, 
I told my mum and she said it was the wind. That's her full ghost story. (laughs) (laughs) I love that, though. It's brilliant. Terrifying, isn't it? Terrifying. And it depends, like, you know... Does he mean like the wind howling around the house, or does he mean he's got terribly trapped winds? <laughs> oh, brilliant! Shall we go back to Victorian times? I, I, I don't think I can top that in terms of scariness. Ben. No, go back to Victorian times because um, I want to. Yeah, after that, I want to tell you about this uh, study that apparently disproves ghosts and it is very very Victorian in its approach so, okay alright so let's do that this one uh, again from the the book uh, these are all from the same book ghost stories collected with a particular view to counteract the vulgar, vulgar belief in ghosts and apparitions from the late 1800s uh, this one is called a London ghost in the year 1704 a gentleman to all appearances of large fortune, took furnished lodgings in a, sa- in a house in Soho Square. After he had resided there some weeks, he lost his brother, who had lived in Hampstead, and who on his deathbed particularly desired to be interned in the family vault in Westminster Abbey. I mean, these are some illustrious locations here. They right? are. The gentleman requested his landlord to permit him to bring the corpse of his brother to his lodgings and to make arrangements there for the funeral. The landlord, without hesitation, signified his compliance. The body, dressed in a white shroud, was accordingly brought in a very handsome coffin and placed in the great dining room. The funeral was to take place the next day and the lodger and his servants went out to make all the necessary preparations for the solemnity. He stayed out late, but there was no that was no uncommon thing. The landlord and his family, conceiving that they had no occasion to wait for him, retired to bed as usual, about 12 o'clock. One maid servant was left up to let the, him in, so the lodger, and to boil some water, which he had desired might be ready for making tea on his return. The girl was accordingly sitting all alone in the kitchen, when a tall, spectre-looking figure entered and clapped itself down in the chair opposite her. Clapped itself down. (laughs) (laughs) Well done, sir. Well done, sir. (laughs) I say, (laughs) tremendous action. The maid was by no means one of the most timid of her sex, but she was terrified beyond expression, lonely as she was at this unexpected apparition. Uttering a loud scream, She flew out like an arrow of the side door and hurried to the chamber of her master and mistress. Scarcely had she had awakened them and communicated to the whole family some portion of the fright from which she was herself overwhelmed when the spectre, enveloped in a shroud with the face of death-like paleness, made its appearance and sat down in a chair in the bedroom without their having observed how it entered. The worst of all, was that this chair stood by the door of the bedchamber so that not a creature could get away without passing close to the apparition, which rolled its glaring eyes so frightfully and so hideously distorted its features that they could not bear to look at it at all. The master and mistress crept under the bedclothes, covered with profuse perspiration, while the maidservant sank nearly insensible by the side of the bed. 
At the same time, the whole house seemed to be in an uproar, for though they had covered themselves over head and ears, they could still hear the incessant noise and clatter which served to increase their terror. I'm going to pause at this point, Ben. What do you think's going on here? So, on the surface of it, it sounds... Sounds pretty good, ghost... Poltergeisty and... Apparition-y. But when they say an apparition-like fellow, what do they mean? I don't really understand what that means. Like, see-through, or...? Yeah, I don't know. Enveloped in a shroud with a face of death-like paleness. Right, okay, so it's almost like um, a traditional sort of ghost in a white cloth kind of thing. Yeah. Okay. I remember there's a dead body in 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 the dining room, in a coffin. Yeah, yeah. So they're all thinking that the body's reanimated and come back. Yeah, yeah. But this... I don't know. This is an odd one because wouldn't you just go, hello, who are you? Rather than diving straight under the table. I don't know. I think the implication is they're so scared. They just panics. So it's... uh, Um, So someone dressed up. Why would they be dressed up? Or they... Shall I put you out of your misery? Well, hang on. Can, let me just see if I can come to a logical conclusion. Okay, he's right. pale. He's white, wearing white clothes. Is, is it something ridiculous, like it's a baker or something like that has walked in? Well, the the reality of the situation is far more complicated. Oh, not a baker then. So at length, all became perfectly still in the house. The landlord ventured to raise his head and to steal a glance at the chair by the door, but behold, the ghost was gone. Sober reason began to resume its power. The poor girl who brought to herself after a good deal of shaking. In a short time, they plucked up sufficient courage to quit the bedroom and to commence an examination of the house, which they expected to find in great disorder. Nor were their anticipations unfounded. The whole house had been stripped by artful thieves and the gentleman had decamped without paying for his lodgings. Oh, right. So they'd scared them off so they could nick everything. It turned out that he was no other than the accomplice of notorious Arthur Chamber, who was later executed at Tyburn in 1706, and that the supposed corpse was his arch, was this arch-rogue himself, who had whitened his hands and face with chalk and merely counterfeited death. About midnight, he quitted the coffin and appeared to the maid in the kitchen. When she flew upstairs, he softly followed her and seated at the door of the chamber. He acted as a sentinel so that his industrious accomplices were able to plunder the house without the least molestation. Uh, That's clever. But (laughs) is also the plot of, like... A really terrible film. But yeah. only people in Victorian times would go, <laughs> Christ, it's a ghost. Yeah. Hide under the table. You go, Oi, what are you doing in here? You have to remember, though, around that time, like ghost stories and supernatural fear of the paranormal, it was at its height. Do you know what I mean? So there, I think there was a general acceptance. So, so, so it, if it's true, which it purports to be, 
it's quite a clever little technique, isn't it? Because you get free lodgings in a nice place in Soho Square for a for a number of weeks. You all you got to do is you sneak somebody in, so you don't have to break in mm. either way. You know what I mean? Mm. Scare, have one of them scare the bejesus out of everyone, and you just kind of head off with all the goodies in the house. Yeah, quite very yeah. clever. It's like a tales of the unexpected. Yeah, it is quite good. Also. Literally the plot of half the Scooby-Doo cartoons. It is very Scooby-Doo, isn't it? It is. But it's an interesting segue because it there's in that story, there's this assumption that ghosts are sort of white, sheeted entities. Yeah. And I think we've become, you know, suddenly we've discussed things where that isn't really the case. I mean, it seems like people re- rarely see something like that something which is you know as dickens would describe rattling chains and moaning you see all sorts of ghosts even if they're ghost sandwiches or yeah. whatever which is why <clears throat> when i was reading this book so as we know we are for the doubters the believers everyone in between and we can't just read paranormal stuff we like to check into things which come at it from the opposite point of view, because, of course, we're trying to be balanced. And and I do like um, Richard Wiseman. I've worked with him before. I think he's um, he explains things really well. And he wrote this book, Paranormality, and he kind of talks about all the things you would expect him to talk about, like um, fortune tellers and the Fox sisters and all of that good stuff. And yep. like, it's, that's interesting. And then he talks about this experiment by psychical researcher Tony Cornell. And the aim of it is, well, you'll see what I mean when I say that's a weird thing to do. The The, the methodology is weird, but it, it's an attempt to really prove whether people see ghosts. And I, I just think this is a badly formed experiment. Maybe someone who is more scientific than I will be able to tell me why it's not. But... Um, his even Richard said his strangest series of studies aimed to assess the reliability of eyewitness testimony for ghosts. And he says the idea was simple. First, <laughs> this is great. First, Cornell and his colleagues would dress up as apparitions. You see, right. like just like, like you said in that story, yeah, yeah. stand in various public spaces at night and attract the attention of passers-by. Next, other members of the research team would interview those eyewitnesses and assess the accuracy of their testimony. However, as often with the case with supernatural science, the studies proved surprisingly difficult to conduct. In their initial experiment, Cornell wrapped himself up in a white sheet and spent (laughs) spent several nights walking around a dark park in the centre of Cambridge. (laughs) I I'm, just, you just, I just kind of imagine the police turning. Oh, what are you up to, there, sir? <laughs> I'm, I'm doing be a ghost, doing, sir. <laughs> I'm doing an experiment. Yeah, <laughs> of course you are, sir. Please come with me. But the sit, I just think he's got the assumption wrong. Anyway, yeah. although eighty people were in a position to see the fake spirit, none of them appeared to notice the strange goings on. One, wondering if the disappointing results were due to poor illumination, <laughs> Cornell put the sheet on again and spent several nights walking around a well-lit Cambridge graveyard. We, 
Again, I don't think that's the problem with your yeah. uh, thing. You look like a man in a sheet. Yeah, that's yeah. the problem. A total of 90 cars, 40 cyclists and 12 pedestrians passed by, but only four people appeared to have noticed the apparition. Of these, two were interviewed, with one saying that he had assumed that the ghost was part of an art project, (laughs) and the other remarking that the person under the sheet must surely be mad. (laughs) So... So what he's he, what he's doing is not testing whether people are reliably seeing ghosts. He's asking whether people can reliably see a man in a bedsheet. But uh, so you may get onto this. But uh, did he? Um, were there any kind of reports in the papers of people seeing paranormal stuff? Because it sounds like, in a way, he's like he's helping the argument for the uh, existence of ghosts because if people's reactions to somebody dressed up in a sheet are uh, it's obviously somebody who's crazy or you know an art project then it says there's something different about when you really see a ghost if they exist yeah well i mean he doesn't he doesn't go into that he just talks about the um the, the sort of how this experiment was carried out and right. and and it's designed so I don't think it did appear in any newspapers. Um, so Richard doesn't mention it, and I think that's probably because it was a man in a sheet, um, <laughs> which is really different to something else. But just just to finish that off, he go he does go a step further, and I admire him for this. He goes and asks a local cinema if he can dance at the front of the stage before the film goes on. Right. And so was to, and I don't understand where his logic's coming. He's a professor, not me. He decides that the most appropriate film to do this before the start of is an X-rated film. So he goes and dances in a bedsheet before a porno comes on. Oh, well, not a horror film. Though. No, no, because people would assume that it was part, was of, part of the, of the thing. thing. But you would in a cinema anyway, I think. Exactly. And then, so he asked people what they saw, and largely people go, I saw a man in a bedsheet at the front of the cinema, some people saw nothing at all, and one person said they saw a Victorian child. And this is when he starts going, ah, well, you see, you see. But I think they were just taking the piss. I think they were like, yeah, oh, yeah, mate, it was a ghost. Yeah, it was a Victorian child ghost. Yeah, yeah. So I think he proved nothing apart from um, people don't think there's anything that odd careering around in a bedsheet but if he'd been a glowing nun i think probably people would have paid attention i have another thought as well you sure this was not an excuse for him to have a good reason to go and see a porno it's a really elaborate thing because he's done it at the start of the film and then he wants to interview everyone afterwards which means he's got to sit through the whole movie to get them as they're coming out and he's under a sheet he can do what he wants yeah, i bet he didn't shake anybody's hand no no um no yeah that is oh i've re- oh god i think i should probably go and do this in a strip club Sorry, I have so many questions about it. I know you can't answer them, but it's like... so. Okay, so he's done it at the start, and then uh, I don't know if he stays in costume or not, and then he he, he watches the film with everyone, and then... Or maybe he leaves, I don't know. And then he waits outside, and as these people who've gone to see a porno film 
come out of the cinema, he says, do you mind, do you mind taking part in a survey? Yeah, that's exactly what happens. Did you see anything odd before the film started? Um, no, I was just getting my hand cream oh, out. Brilliant. I mean, it's, uh, yeah, so strangely designed thing, but it, do- it made me think of that is exactly what the people in your Victorian stories would do. They would bet each other, I, sir, shall walk down Cambridge High Road wearing nout but a bedsheet, and if anyone shall stop me, I shall boo them. Or poke them with a fork. Yes, that's right. (laughs) How bizarre. How bizarre is that? That's so weird. It is is really weird. But it sounds like they haven't really proved anything. They've just done a lot of dressing up and seen a porno. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I think so. Is there a conclusion or not to that experiment? Not really. I think what Richard's doing is we're having a little bit of a laugh at the experiment, <laughs> but he's he's trying to make the point that eyewitness testimony is famously flawed. Right. But that doesn't mean that these things don't happen. What it means is that lots of people see and hear different things, they might interpret it differently. When somebody reports a Ford Escort crashing into a Fiat Uno and gives a report to the police, Mm. it doesn't undermine it by the fact it was a Ford Fiesta rather than a Ford Escort. It doesn't change the basic premise of the story. And I I think what we're doing is dancing around the the uh, Escort-Fiesta argument there. But look, before we uh, come back to you, can I can I can I sort of cheer everyone up with one of my least scary ghost stories? Yeah, yeah, you've you've really brought it this week. <laughs> this is this is great. This is this is literally as I read it um, from the person that wrote it. This is verbatim. One summer evening, I was playing in my grandparents' shed. I took my granddad's hammer and used it to drive some nails into a board that was in there. Later on, I asked granddad if he could show me how to use a hammer properly. He said he'd be happy to, but he'd need to buy a hammer first. He knew nothing of the shed or his tool collection. <laughs> wow so that's either alzheimer granddad you were in someone else's shed or you got trans-dimensional tools uh, that is yeah thanks for sharing that <laughs> that's hilarious um and uh, just in, in, the, in a reply to that, because this was not a thread about least scary ghost stories. All these people think these are terrifying. Right, right. The two-line reply to that, I think, it's not, as, it's not as terrible, but it is rubbish. I once opened my door to go to the car, and a man with a baseball cap and clothes in 80s style walked out from the back of my house, looking straight ahead. I was so shocked I shut the door and then opened it again and he was nowhere to be seen. That's it. That's it. <laughs> That's it. Just, she oh. saw a man. Uh, what, in a baseball cap and 80s? What is 80s? I mean, oh. uh, you know, it was like yeah. um, some Joe Bloggs jeans and <laughs> uh, an Aerosmith 
jump yeah. for, you know. So I just imagine that if the person had spoken to them, they would have said, oh, sorry, I thought this was Stephen Seagal's house. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, whoa. That is, <laughs> I was going to say, you've tapped into a rich vein there, haven't you, Ben? <laughs> oh, it's a very rich vein. It is a very rich vein. But I've, I've, That's I'm, brilliant, I'm saving a genuinely scary one for the end. Okay. I, I think this one is genuinely scary. All right. Well, I've, I, I've got one more. And weirdly, actually, um, slightly in a slightly act of premonition by you, you, you slightly touched upon it earlier. So this is a. Uh, story of somebody encountering uh, a ghost in chains. Ah, oh, you see, that was such a that's such a Victorian thing, isn't it? Ghost yeah. in chains. And I, 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 again, I don't know the date of when this was written, and because you always, when I think of a ghost in chains, I always think of uh, a Christmas Carol. Yes, yes, um, which is my favourite ghost story of all time. Um, but yeah, I don't know if. The this this influenced Dickens or vice versa. I'm not sure when this one was written, but um, uh, yes, whether whether Dickens had something to at least popularise that vision of a a ghost in chains. I don't know. I think my my understanding of the chains thing is that it comes from the sort of um, executed prisoners and. Right. Uh, there's some law around L-O-R-E around um, them coming and revisiting their victims and things like that. And you, the the sense of um, sort of uneasy presence is this distant sounding of the chains. Yeah. But I think in Christmas Carol, there's no there's no real reason given for the chains, is there? Uh, I, I depends. I, I I don't know if I'm getting confused with movie adapt. I've read the book a lot of times, but I, I often get them confused. Isn't there a thing of it's uh, it's it's one link in the chain for each of your sins or the bad deeds that you've done? Yes, that's it. I'm pretty sure that's in the yeah, book as yeah, well. Yeah, you're right, yeah. you're right. Yes, yes, I hadn't... Um yeah, but he's. I think he's made that up, hasn't he? Yeah, yeah, he's made yeah. that up. I th- it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a physical metaphor, if you want, Will, for his... Um, for the for the sins that you've committed in your real life that you carry a link to each of the chains. Ah, I see, I see, I see. Got it, right. Well, this one is called Extraordinary Confession of a Ghost. The circumstances recorded in the following narrative are stated to have really happened. They are of so horrible a stamp that for the honour of human nature, every reader must wish them to be fictitious. They are given in the form of a letter, the name of the writer of which is indicated only by the initial. Yesterday, thus wrote M, de M, to one of his friends. Yesterday, the pretty Mademoiselle Vidal was married to the admirable Saint-Ville. As a neighbour, I was invited to the festivities given on the occasion, but the merriment of the day was succeeded, as far as I was concerned, by a night of such horror as my pen can faintly describe. Good start, right? That is quite a good way of opening it, yeah. You know old Vidal, whose unlucky physiognomy was always so repulsive to us, and to whom we were inconsequent afraid to trust. 
I watched him narrowly yesterday and fully expected that the joyous occasion of the marriage of his only daughter would relax his morose muscles and plant a smile of satisfaction on his scowling visage. I was mistaken. Instead of taking a paternal interest in the tender emotions of his child and the raptures of his son-in-law, he seemed, on the contrary, to be displeased with the joy expressed in our faces. And this unnatural father had well-nigh spoiled by his disdainable temper all the pleasures of the day for both his children and his guests. When bedtime arrived, I was shown for what of for want of a more commodious lodging into a room in the great tower of the castle. Scarcely had I closed my eyes before I was roused by a dull noise, as I thought overhead. I listened and distinctly heard the rattling of chains and the sound of footsteps slowly descending the stairs. All at once my door flew open. A spectre entered, dragging along the chains, which cranked frightfully. The spectre went to the fireplace, stirred the fire, and pushed together some half-extinguished brands. A hollow voice pronounced the words, Tear, a long time since I warmed myself. I confess, my friend, for why should I deny it, that I was thrilled with horror. I seized my sword to defend myself in case of emergency, and softly drew aside the curtains of the bed. But the glimmer of the fire I perceived the emaciated figure of what appeared to be a venerable old man, half naked with a bald head and a snow-white beard. He was holding his hands, shivering with cold to the fire. I was deeply moved. While I was thus surveying him, a flame now and then flickered from the embers. He looked thoughtfully towards the door by which he had entered and then fixed his eyes steadfastly on the floor. He seemed to be absorbed in the profoundest grief and traces of long misery were deeply imprinted upon his furrowed face. And he's half naked. And he's half naked. In a few minutes he sunk as in involuntarily on his tottering knees. He seemed to pray. The only words I could understand were, O oh God, O oh God, how just are their judgments. I now purposely made some noise with my curtains. Is anybody here? asked he. Is anybody in this bed? Yes, said I, completely undrawing my curtains. But who are you, old man? He sighed and motioned with his hands, as if to signify that he was unable to speak for weeping. At length he became more and more composed. I am the wretchedest creature on the face of the earth, said he. I ought perhaps to tell you no more, but it is so many years since I have beheld human beings. The joy of the sight of one of my fellow creatures hurries me away in spirit of myself. Take compassion on me. My suffering will perhaps seem less severe when I relate them to you. Right, so Ben, I'm going to pause at that point. What do you think's going on here? Half-naked old man. Yeah. A fire. I mean, he just sounds like he's a confused... Yeah, slightly old. Slightly old guy, guy. yeah. But the chains. Mental asylum? I'll plough on. The terror which I had first experienced now gave pace to pity. I put on my morning gown and took a seat beside him. He seemed affected by this proof of my confidence, seized my hand and bedded it with his tears. 
Good man, said he. First satisfy my curiosity and tell me why you tonight have taken up abode in this odious apartment, which is usually unoccupied. What was the extraordinary rattling of carriages which I heard this morning about the castle? Something out of the common course must have happened here. I told him that the bustle had been occasioned by the nuptials of Mademoiselle de Vidal. What? said he, raising his hand. Has Vidal a daughter? Is she married? May the God of heaven bless her and keep her heart pure, pure from the guilt of her progenitors. I am Vidal, the grandfather of the, of the young lady. I have a monster of a son, but no I, his father, must not accuse him. I have no right to do so. You may easily conceive, my friend, that my astonishment at this confession was unbounded. I knew that the father of Avidal had died and was buried twenty years ago, and now he suddenly appeared before me at midnight. I sprang from my seat, rescinded a few steps, fixed my eyes steadfastly on the spectre, and attempted to speak, but could not. Any more thoughts? He's been kept a prisoner. The question, old man, are you really living or are you a spectre? Quivered on my tongue, but I could not give it utterance. He read it, no doubt, in my looks. It is not a spectre, said he. That you see before you, but a man who's been entombed alive. By the God of heaven, I am the living dead, grandfather of the bride whose nuptials you've been celebrating. The base cupidity of my cruel son and the hardness of his heart, which never knew the soft emotions of love and friendship, rendered him insensible to the voice of nature. He put me in chains that he might seize my possessions. He had one day visited a neighbourly gentleman whose father had recently died. He found himself among his tenants receiving their rent and renewing their leases. This sight Vidal devoured with greedy eye and it made him the most baleful impression on his heart, which he had long cherished to wish to be master of my paternal estate. He now became more sullen and gloomy than ever. In about a fortnight, three men in masks burst one night into my chamber and dragged me half-naked to this tower. How Vidal could give out that I was dead I cannot tell, but from the tolling of the bells and the sound of funeral hymns I inferred that it was my own they were performing. This idea filled my soul with mortal anguish. I solicit as the greatest of favour permission to speak to Vidal, but in vain. Those who for these twenty years have bought me bread and water to prolong my wretched life probably consider me a criminal who is condemned to die in the tower. This morning I took notice that the man who bought my allowance neglected to fasten the door securely. I waited anxiously for night that I might avail myself of his carelessness. I must not escape but the liberty of going a few steps further than usual is a great treat to the inmate of a dungeon. When I had somewhat recovered from my astonishment, my first thought was to release this unfortunate man from this horrid confinement. In me, said I to him, the Almighty has sent you a deliverer. All now are fast asleep in the castle. Follow me. I will be your defender, your guide, your avenger. Instead of replying, he fell into a profound reverie. I'm now familiarised with all that renders my situation severe and terrible. Why should I exchange it for any other? The die is cast. I will terminate my wretched career in this tower. 
This melancholy meditation, this contempt of liberty, this most unexpected language combined with other expressions caused me to suspect some deeper hidden secret, and yet I knew not how to reconcile all these things. In short, the whole affair was to me incomprehensible. This old man, however, diminished my astonishment when he thus proceeded. In regard to the few days that I have yet let to live, liberty has no charm for me. If my son is an atrocious villain, his innocent daughter has never done me any harm. Shall I pursue her into the arms of her husband with the disgrace of her family? No, rather I would press her to my heart, bedrew her with my tears. But never, never must I, shall I behold her, farewell. The day begins to dawn, I must return to my tomb. I am thankful for your kindness. Would to God I could avail myself of it, but I cannot, must not. Well then stay here, but I will acquaint the governor of the province with the melancholy situation, and I will then release you by force from the tyranny of your unnatural son. For heaven's sake, make not an improper use of my horrid secret. Leave a monster like me to perish here. I am unworthy of the liberty you offer. I have to atone for the most unnatural deed that villain ever perpetrated. Look here, with horror, this accursed hand. Look at the stain of blood. It is the blood of my father, murdered by me, me, infernal monster, that I might obtain the early possession of the paternal inheritance. That's a uh, that's a heavy one. Cautionary tale as well. He feels that his his son did the same thing that he did to yeah, his father. Yeah, but actually, yeah. you could argue, maybe even, at least he kept him alive, or maybe that's more of a punishment. Well, thanks for such a fritzily story. <laughs> yeah, I thought I thought we'd go a bit kind of darker. I mean, it's no appearing sandwich, but it's pretty. <laughs> <laughs> I had to I had to go to the legs of the earth for that sandwich. But it, I, I do wonder though, because I, I guess it, like you say, it's got the classics. It's got the chains. It's got the very convenient. The door was left open on the day of the wedding. I think if we were looking at it as a modern story, there might be a few holes in there. Because, again, that's supposed to be real, is it? That's supposed to be real, yeah. That's supposed to be extracts from a real letter sent to um, sent from the guy who was staying in the tower who had this encounter with the spectre-come-grandfather writing to his friend of what he'd seen. Hmm. Well, I I mean, it's, cra- <laughs> it's incredibly dark, but... Um... Yeah, again, those Victorians, I assume it's a ghost, even though it's an old man with his uh, togger out. Yeah, been locked up. Um, but it, I, I, I kind of like that kind of gothicness about it with the tower and the chateau and the man in chains. and the. It, it, it reminded me a bit of the Count of Monte Cristo. Uh, yes, which of is, course. Which is another that's story tr- I love. That's true as well, isn't it? Yeah. 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 Hmm. That is interesting. Um, no, I like it. That is suitably terrifying. Well, shall I finish off with a terrifying story? Yeah. We, it, normally we start the other way round, don't we? We kind of get more terrifying as it, uh, we get less terrifying. We as get the less terrifying, yeah. But we've done it the other way. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that. Let's, let's do well, that. It is, is Halloween. We're probably, if you're listening to this in the right time, you might be getting nearer the witching hour. So it makes sense we're getting kind of deeper and darker. Well, I've, I've, got, I've got two left that appeal to me. One, 
I had put in the this is ridiculously unscary catalogue and then I thought mm, I've just changed my mind about it and see what you think this was written recently um on one of the forums um the last one by the way isn't from this forum but um i'm i'm obsessed with this and everybody has come back to this person going it is a rational explanation a bit like your stories but like i can only think of two but um she says i distinctly remember hearing him i was at a family member's house and it was christmas eve I don't know why, but my eyes shot open, and it must have been around 2am. I could hear the soft chime of bells, and it got louder and louder until it was audibly clear what it was. Then I heard a bang on the roof, and I kid you not, hooves. Loads of hooves and bells. The odd thing was, I wasn't excited as you would expect to be seeing Santa. I suddenly became paralysed with fear. I remember hiding in my bed, pulling the blankets over my eyes. I thought if I pretended to sleep, he would go away. I then heard heavy sounds of footsteps around the house and a man's voice grunting. (laughs) Uh, After what seemed like forever, the noises of the man stopped and the hoops took off. After I was sure the coast was clear, I ran to my bedroom window to see if I could catch a glimpse of the appearance, but I saw nothing. That morning, I didn't tell anyone, but simply asked all my male family members if anyone had gotten up overnight. They hadn't, they were all quite elderly. I know what I experienced. My partner thinks it was a delusion or one of those realistic dreams, but the experience was so vivid and unusual, I know it was real. No one will believe me, so I don't bother saying it. Now, that is like a rubbish ghost story. And then I thought, "Eh, actually, I wonder if that's a UFO story. Yeah, before you get onto that, you know what was quite interesting when you started talking about it and it's weird because i mentioned it right at the start of the podcast it was reminding me of a nightmare before christmas ah uh, yeah of course yes i hadn't put two and two together yes. yeah because because you know the, the king of halloween basically takes over christmas and scares all the kids as he drops off presents. <laughs> yes yes um ufo yes that is interesting screen memory yeah so uh although would that imply that the UFO had landed on the top of the house? Or am I being too literal? Well, I think... I think it probably doesn't imply that. I think it just implies that maybe she was taken and that was put in the place of seeing creatures walking into her house. But I don't know. Uh, I would have said the most likely explanation beyond that. I I was joking. I, I think UFOs is is a possible explanation. I think a more likely explanation is a mixture of drunk people coming back from the pub, yeah. doing Santa impressions, playing music yeah. loudly, and the grunting old man probably was one of her elderly relatives who were going to the toilet and they just don't remember they got yeah. up to go to the toilet. Um, I don't really think she was visited by Santa. <laughs> it reminds me of um, Dan Aykroyd's drunken santa in trading places i could could always picture him with a kind of smoked salmon in his hand going (laughs) drunk out of his head um i also thought maybe sleep paralysis came to mind as well oh yeah that's true that's true although she didn't see it did she it was just auditory no she just yeah it's auditory yeah 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 And, and, and yeah i there is something very 
I, I probably weirdly is why a nightmare before Christmas works. There is something instinctly scary about mixing Christmas and horror together. I think. Yeah, I do as well. Krampus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Comes up a lot, and uh, and there's that character in American Horror Story, isn't it? Who dresses up at Santa and he's a, he's a murderer and stuff. So, yeah, there is something. Yeah, I guess it's because it is such an innocent and magical time that anything that slightly perverts that is terrifying. I like a grunty old man. Yeah. So this 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 last one, this is uh I've never heard this story before and it's written in the first person and I think it's scary. So we'll do that and then um we'll leave you to your Halloween. But this is one you can tell other people because I think it's quite unique. And again, it's from a girl. She says, when I was 12, I remember my age because I just got a, a school uniform for my new school. My dad took me to a circus. The big top was amazing with animal smells and the sound of a band. We watched horse riders and a fire eater on a high wire. I was absolutely enthralled. It came to a break and my dad gave me money for an ice cream. And I ran down to the cellar who was just by the side of the ring. There were loads of kids there and I was just looking all around at the sights and listening to the sounds, very particularly the wonderful horse that was slowly walking around the ring. In that moment, I felt a hand come around me, not hard, but firm. I twisted my head round and it was a clown. He began to do this clown laugh and spin me round. His face wasn't scary at all, just clowny. And I remember he smelled of wood chips. Suddenly, he put his face right in mine and whispered, You'd better clap, little girl. Otherwise, Daddy won't be able to take you home and you'll have to live here forever. So I shrieked and shook myself loose. And this attracted my dad, who came running over. He asked what had happened, and I explained. But he said he'd been watching me the entire time, and there was no clown. In fact, there was no clown in the whole show. <laughs> that really Ooh. that really got me i thought no, that's no, a I, really I, good story i got a little bit of goosebumps yeah generally wow okay yeah oh that's got the lot hasn't it yeah it's really well written as well because i i i was kind of there i was in the circus tent and i was wow very pennywise that isn't it it's very pennywise and the fact that her dad had been watching yeah and saw nothing just her shrieking is is really is really strange, and the fact that she felt the hand, yeah, that's a, that's a weird one. That I don't know if it's a ghost story or what it is, but uh, that is the best Halloween story I've read this year. Yeah, I love that. That is a really good way to end. That that's a matter. Oh yeah. Oh. Nah. Good job. I'm actually pleased we're recording this during the day. <laughs> Otherwise, I'd be terrified. <laughs> well, I, we've had a real smorgasbord, haven't we, today? We've had that, which is just amazingly scary paranormal story. We've had people who were tricked into uh, believing in paranormal. If you want to do us a favour and give us a treat, uh, like subscribe review actually review would be fantastic if you've liked what we've done here um 
and oh, hopefully we haven't scared you too much for for the rest of your Halloween, or maybe hopefully we have. I don't know. Which don't, are you don't don't go looking for uh, sandwiches in the kitchen in the middle yeah. of the night. Don't ever mix turkey and ham. Ghost food. Yeah, it's a thing, people. Ghost food. <laughs> <laughs> and I will say, I was reminded of that um, when we were living in a flat. This would be about twelve years ago. My girlfriend accused me of eating leftover sandwiches that were from her lunchbox that were on the side of the kitchen. And I swore blind to her I wasn't getting up in the night to eat her half-eating chicken sandwiches. And then the next night, the bottom half of our uh, bananas had gone missing. and I'd never seen anything like it. And then we saw in the corner a scuttling thing. We realised we had rats. So it was rats that were eating our sandwiches. Well, I, 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 it's weird as well. I wasn't going to, I was going to mention it, but it's just come back to me. Yesterday, which uh, we're recording on Saturday, so uh, I I start Halloween weekend, wasn't it? I would Mm. say yesterday. Mm -hmm. I had two um, huge instances of deja vu. I was talking to a friend of mine on a Zoom call because we're doing a, 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 a thing at the moment. Uh, and we'd talked probably about three weeks ago and we were talking about something and towards the end I went we've had this conversation before and because what they were saying and what I was saying to their responding to what they were saying it was like I've had this conversation before didn't really think about it Uh, and then I was uh, taking my daughter to the opticians and we were in the car and we were listening to music and we were talking to me about music and just as I was parking, I was like, last time we did this, I parked in this spot and we were having this same conversation about music and it was so familiar. And it was the second time it had happened during the day. And it was so much, I almost, I had a feeling of panic the second time that it was like, this is, so it's very glitch in, glitch in the matrixy, really weird. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Well, the veil is supposed to be thinner. Yeah, I don't know if it's supposed to be the veil between things that you've done. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, hopefully, hopefully, my chains are not getting too long. Um, brilliant. Well, look, uh, anyone out there who's listening, uh, Halloween, I hope you have a great fun time. It's one of our favourite times of year, as we were talking about last week. Uh, if you're listening to this uh, after Halloween, it's still. Uh, Hopefully it's given you a bit more of the spirit of that Halloween feel. We'll be back with a normal Quantum Mechanics episode next week, right, Ben? Absolutely. Have a lovely Halloween. Yes, well, we'll see you next week on the Quantum Mechanics. Take care, bye. Bye. Quantum mechanics.